So, it is the middle of the week. That means it's okay for me to wear jeans. Uh, Someone asked me if I would uh, ever wear shorts up here. And I told them if I wore shorts for the morning service, there might not be an evening service. Because it will mean the glory has departed. And that is exactly where we ended yesterday. We saw the end of the ark took out of the land. We've been looking this week about 1 Samuel, what it can teach us about being the people of God. We looked at the story of Hannah and what Hannah can teach us about being a people of prayer. We looked at the story of Eli yesterday, what Eli can teach us about being a people of witness. And we saw that Hannah reflected the need of Israel that called for God's grace, and Eli reflected the need of Israel that called for God's judgment. Now, what I didn't really highlight yesterday is this kind of cute wordplay at the end of the passage that we read in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where it says that Eli was heavy, and that when Eli heard the Ark of the Covenant had been taken, Eli fell off his chair and he died. He broke his neck because he was heavy. Now, the word for heaviness is also related to the word for glory, so that God's glory has been taken, and Eli, who was heavy, has died. It's almost this competition, the heaviness of Eli and the heaviness of God. We don't always think about this, but glory is related to this idea of heaviness, of weightiness. Just look at the person next to you and say, you look glorious this morning. It's related to heaviness, to weightiness. Uh, uh, My illustration of this might be like this. Uh, When I teach... I am aware that I carry a certain weight, no jokes, I'm aware that I carry a certain weight into the classroom that most of the students don't carry. They walk in, they sit down, no one really pays attention. I walk into the classroom, now the professor is there, and people start looking at their watches to see what time it is, right? Like, did I show up on time? Is it time to begin class? How much time do I have? Just by walking into the room, I've brought in a different kind of heaviness, a different kind of weightiness. But once in a while, someone comes into the class that has greater weightiness than I do. So you might have, say, a Doug Graham. People at North Central University love Doug Graham. The students adore Doug Graham. He has been the campus pastor there for years. He has ministered to them. If he walks into my classroom, he comes in with a greater heaviness than I do. Sometimes, you know, and I'm, I'm bigger than Doug Graham. You can tell. If, if I wanted to go after Doug Graham, all I have to do is run. I can't catch him. If I could catch him, I could set on him, right? I mean, that's the difference. My one fight move is to fall on people. That's what I got. I have a heaviness. But in terms of presence, in terms of glory, Doug has a greater weight. Our college president, Scott Hagen, sometimes he walks in. All the students stop. I stop. Why is the president here? Because he carries a greater weight, a greater heaviness. When I first met my wife, it was my first Sunday in Southern California, I had moved to Southern California from Missouri where I was serving as an executive pastor at a church. Now, I was going to California for school, but there was a couple in my church who begged me to go to their church in Southern California my first Sunday there. They had lived there most of their lives, had only recently moved to Missouri. They're like, Pastor, you have got to go to our church. I promised them I would go. What I did not know 
was that they had been the former, he had been the former head of the board of that church for years. He had called the pastor ahead of time. Now, I'm headed to their church. I don't know Southern California. It's my first Sunday in L.A. I don't know that it takes you 30 minutes to drive to 7-Eleven. I've never experienced that before because I've always lived in rural communities. So it takes me a while to find the church. It takes me a while to get there. I get there late. It is a large church. Again, something I'm not used to. The worship is just ending. I decide to go up to the balcony and sit down. And then I can at least tell my former members, church members, I went to their church. So I go up, I sit down, and as soon as I sit down, the senior pastor stands up and goes, is Alan Tennyson here this morning? You know, I'm like, man, I'm so glad I didn't go to the restroom. You know, I'm sitting there, I kind of sheepishly wave my hand, and someone in the choir hollers out, he's up there! And so, you know, he looks, he's like, so-and-so called me, I want to meet you after church. So then I'm in the foyer after church, hanging around, waiting for the pastor. Now people are coming up to me, because I got there late, so I I didn't get greeted, right? I just walked right up into the balcony. They're trying to find out who I am. Why were you called out? And as I'm talking to them, trying to explain, well, I come from here, I come from there, I mentioned that I graduated from Evangel University. And they're like, oh, we have a young woman who works in our office who also graduated from Evangel. And I say, who? And they point out in the foyer, the other side, the woman who would become my wife. First Sunday in California. Now she is in the middle of a group of other women who are talking, all, all uh, uh, you know, women in their 20s. And I look at my wife and I see the other women, but all I actually see is my wife. And I decide, she went to Evangel, I should go meet her. I walk over there to her. I ignore all the other women that are talking to my wife, not trying to be rude, but I saw her. I want to talk to her. And as I'm talking to her, I find out she went to the school the semester after I graduated. She lived in the dorm I lived in, meaning we knew some of the same people. I don't know anyone in this state. And now I'm talking to this woman who knows friends of mine, and I start getting animated And she starts slowly backing up. Which I now teach my male students is the universal sign for politely in the conversation. Twelve years later, she said yes when I proposed. Twelve years to overcome that, right? People tell me Jacob waited seven years for Rachel and I'm like lightweight. But here's the thing, my wife had greater pull. She had greater gravity. Now, wait, that doesn't sound right. She had greater gravitational attraction. Is that better? Okay, good. She had greater presence. She had greater glory. Now, here's the thing. God's glory may have departed Israel. That's what Israel thinks because they don't have the box. But if you read on in the chapters we're not going to get to, God goes to the Philistines and God is able to take care of himself. I said last that God would rather be discredited for a season than credited as the wrong kind of God. He will not let Israel treat him like a lucky charm, but he also won't let the Philistines treat him like a war trophy. They put him in the temple of their God, Dagon. They put them at the bottom of Dagon as if he is prostrate. The box is there. They come up the next morning, and Dagon, the idol, has fallen over and is now laying prostrate in front of the box. 
You're like, well, that's strange. Pick up the idol, put it back up, come up the next morning, it's fallen over again, and now the head and the arms have been cut off. Israel says, where is the glory? The glory is over there scaring the snot out of the Philistines. They eventually said, we can't handle this. They send the ark back. Israel, they've lost Eli, they've lost his sons. They don't know what to do with it. And they just give it to some family in another town. And in the midst of this, we finally come to the middle of 1 Samuel chapter 7. And I want to begin reading here in the middle of verse number 2. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out toward the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But the Lord that day thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them in such a panic that they were rooted before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to the point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Sheen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. Skipping on here to verse 15. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. He always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord there. Now, we come to this passage in the middle here of verse 2, and it says that Israel turned to God. What it actually says in the Hebrew is that Israel lamented towards the Lord. They lamented towards the Lord. Israel is in a state of recognizing their need for repentance. Israel has lost their leadership. Israel has lost the box. God has been able to prove himself. And now Israel is coming back and saying, we lament. We express our sorrow for what we've done towards God. I want to say here, repentance involves a sense of godly sorrow. I think sometimes we don't always emphasize enough the sorrow that we can feel when we recognize that we have sinned against God and others. Lament is okay. Repentance isn't just us saying to God that we're sorry. It's not just us saying to God, I wish I've never done it. Repentance is saying with integrity, I wish to never do it again. I wish to never do it again. How many of you have ever done something and you meant with integrity, I wish not just not to do it, I never want to be that person who would do this again? That's a state of repentance. And with that comes genuine godly sorrow. Lamentation, tears, is a very appropriate response to God 
And it's one we don't have to get rid of too quickly. Now, I don't know if I'm saying this to you or I'm just saying this to me who also served as a pastor, but sometimes I worry I tried to rush people too quickly past the tears. It's okay to feel the sorrow over sin. Because the degree to which we feel the sorrow is the degree to which we will feel the relief of our salvation. It's okay to feel the sorrow over sin. Israel laments towards the Lord. And what does Samuel do? He tells them if they really want to return to God with all their hearts, then get rid of all the little gods that they have in their possession and commit to serving him. During this time, Israel worships God as the God of Israel, but they also have smaller gods. They also have little gods that they'll use for other reasons, for other purposes. Sometimes when we think of idolatry, we think of idolatry as putting something in place of God. I once had a young man who left my church. He called me up one day and he said, Pastor, he was a new believer. I had been working with him with some very strong spiritual struggles that he had. And he said, Pastor, you're not going to like what I'm about to tell you. But I've just been offered the job of my dreams And the job of his dreams involved putting him back in the lifestyle he had been saved from. And I said, no, you can't do this. He said, I knew you would say that. I'm like, I will have failed you as a pastor if you didn't know I was going to say that. We talked for three hours about this. And finally, we got to the point where I said, the problem is not just the lifestyle. The problem is the money you're being offered You want it for the money as well. It's as if your God is your money. Money is your God. And he finally said to me, it was like this revelation, you're right. Money is my God. I can't serve Jesus and money. Pastor, I choose the money. And that was the end of our conversation. Now, that's what we typically think of when we think of idolatry, right? But it's not just replacing God entirely. Idolatry can also be replacing God a little. Not just replacing God entirely, it can be replacing God a little. Israel worships God, but they still have little gods. They still have smaller gods. They still have other things they turn to for very specific things, other little idols that they use in their lives. You know, the word of the Lord to Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4 You shall love the Lord your God. First it begins, the Lord our God is one. What that means is Israel has no pantheon. There's no other gods. There is one God. There's no pantheon. And it's in light of that that God can say, therefore love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Because if Israel has no pantheon, there's no needed for divided loyalties. You can give God everything Because there's nothing else in competition with God. Christians, it's not just that we can replace God entirely. Sometimes we can replace God a little. And we have smaller things in our lives. That on Sunday, I am fully after God. But come Monday afternoon, I'm living for something else. Wednesday night, I'm fully after God again. Come Thursday, I'm living for something else. Israel, to make this commitment, has to get rid of of all the little gods. Then, Israel has to recognize that they are coming together with Samuel. I want to highlight, I've said this earlier, in Israel, 
that is God's people is called to represent God to the nations, called to represent God to the world. And an Israel that doesn't represent God as his people is an Israel that really has no need to exist. Because for the world to be saved, we have to live like the people of God. An Israel that is God's people is an Israel that represents God before others. I teach at North Central University. I love teaching at North Central University. I've been there for 10 years. But do you know why I'm at North Central? It's not just because of a paycheck. I'm at North Central because I believe in their mission. Their mission is to raise up students to be responsible adults serving God's kingdom in the world. That's what I can get on board with. That's what I'm for. If tomorrow North Central University decided to completely change their mission, they can move away from education. Perhaps President Scott Hagan had come up with a phenomenal burger recipe and said, you know what, we could do better at making burgers. Now, I have no problem with burgers. You can clearly tell that. I think it's great to serve people that way, but that's not the mission of our school. And I'm not at North Central because of our name. I'm at North Central because of our mission. If we kept the name and changed the mission, there's no reason for me to be there. Same thing with the Assemblies of God. I have lived in the Assemblies of God my entire life. My parents were Assemblies of God ministers. I grew up in an Assembly of God church. As a child, I was changed by going to Assemblies of God camps. I went to an Assemblies of God college. I was credentialed as an Assemblies of God minister. I'm back at an AG school right now. I love the Assemblies of God. But the Assemblies of God taught me that what it was about was a mission. The Assemblies of God exists for the gospel and the kingdom of God. And if the Assemblies of God ever changes that mission, I'm not here for the name, I'm here for the mission. Israel has a mission. It's not just that they're Israel. That's not enough. They have a mission that they have to fulfill. So what does Samuel do? He brings them together. I said to you uh, every day that there's one word I want to highlight that gets repeated a lot in certain passages. It's kind of like my Sesame Street. The lesson for the day is sponsored by... The word for the day is assemble. We're talking about the assemblies of God. The word for the day in this passage is assemble. Israel assembled together at Mizpah. And they prayed that God would intercede for them. And what did they do? They drew water and poured it out. That's a sign of ceremonial washing. They fasted as a sign of sorrow. Now, how many of you have ever been so sad over something you couldn't eat? How many of you have ever been so sad over something you couldn't stop eating? Right? Like, I got to go to Costco because Walmart does not have enough ice cream. I got to get there. Anyone ever medicated themselves with food? Fasting is when we say this is a problem that food isn't going to fix. This is a problem that other things aren't going to be able to fix. Israel poured out their water. Israel fasted. And then what did Israel do? Israel confessed their sin. They said that we have sinned against the Lord. Confession is also a powerful sign of repentance because when we admit our sin, we also admit our need. I know of an AG minister who years ago had been caught in a moral failing, but it was a moral failing he wasn't willing to really fess up to. He wasn't willing to tell people he did this. So he was actually meeting before the presbyters. 
And the presbyters were trying to tell him, we know that there's sin in your life that you need to confess. And he kept kind of hemming and hawing and, oh, well, this or that. And finally, one elderly presbyter in the room, you know how sometimes the elderly can really get to the point, looked at him and he said, son, you know you did it. We know you did it. God knows you did it. The only question is, do you want to go to hell? And at that, the minister cried and confessed his sin. Admitting our sin admits our need. Israel came together through the water. They came together through sorrow. They came together in confession. This is what revival looks like. This is what revival looks like. And at the moment that they come together... Have you ever experienced a, chair, a church, been in a revival, where a church is experiencing a time of repentance, a time of confession? The church is getting right before God. And you know what typically happens in revivals? When God is moving in the church, that's when the enemy moves against the church in the world. Churches in revival at some point are going to experience some kind of conflict in the world. Azusa Street Revival, we don't always point out this, but the Los Angeles Police Department had to station two permanent police officers at the Azusa Street Revival because of all the problems it was posing. Every night, it was a duty station for the police. You just had to be at the revival. When there's a revival, there's trouble. Israel assembles, Israel repents, but they're at a place called Mezpah, which means watchtower. It's very likely a high ground. And the Philistines think Israel is assembling. So the Philistines raise up an army to go after Israel while they're in a moment of repentance. And Israel cries out to Samuel and says, cry out to God. Samuel prays for Israel. Samuel offers sacrifice for Israel. And it says that as he cried out to the Lord, God answered by thundering against the Philistines throwing them to such a panic that Israel was able to pursue them. What does Samuel do at the point where the battle stopped? Samuel takes a stone. He names it Ebenezer, stone of help. And he raises it up at that point and says, at this point has the Lord helped us. And then something interesting happens. I skipped on to this, but it tells us where Samuel judged. A judge like Samuel is literally judging. This is the form of government that you have at this time in Israel. You have a conflict with your neighbor. You can't go to the police. There aren't any. You can't go to a king. He doesn't exist. What you do is you wait for the judge to come to your town. And you say before the judge, Judge Mark Dean, Doug Graham has been mean to me. I want you to judge between him and I. That's what the judge does. But where does Samuel go to judge? He goes to Mizpah. What did he put up at Mizpah? A stone, Ebenezer. Thus far has the Lord helped us. He goes to Gilgal. Where was Gilgal? Gilgal was the place where Israel had taken 12 stones from the Jordan River when God parted it. They put them up together as a sign to their children and their children's children. This is where the Lord helped us enter the promised land. And he goes to Bethel. Where is Bethel? Bethel's the place where Jacob had slept when he was on the run from his brother. And he had a dream where he saw angels ascending and descending. And what does Jacob do? Jacob takes the stone that he slept on and he raises it up as a memory that this was the house of God and I didn't even know it. Where does Samuel go to judge the people of Israel? 
everywhere they have set up a reminder of what God has done for his people. This is my first point. We're going to talk today about being a people of faith. And my first point is simply this. A people of faith are a community of repentance and remembrance. We're a community of repentance and remembrance. Israel represents for us here a type of church where they repent, where they trust in intercession, and they remind themselves afterwards of the victory of God. Understand, as a community, we come together in repentance. Every single person who belongs to the church is here because we have repented. We have confessed. There's not a person in the church who's not a part that has said, I have a need. I had to be forgiven. I'm here because of the grace of God. Now, not all troubles that we have in life necessarily call for repentance because not everything that goes wrong is a result of sin. But how many know that when we experience trouble, sometimes trouble still shows us things we have to repent of? How many of you know that there are couples who've experienced a new level of marital strife because of something called COVID? Because work in their marriage was a release valve. Every day they could leave home, they could go to work, and they could get time away. But when COVID hit, what happened? They're stuck together. You know what I mean? There are different people that you think of when you think of COVID. Some, they're like, I get to be with my family. And some say, I'm stuck at home. And it brought out issues in the marriage that work had been hiding. Sometimes the trouble is not a result of our sin, but sometimes the trouble shows us the things we need to repent of. But when we trouble, when we are in need of deliverance, we can still turn to God in faith as a community of repentance. And when God delivers us, what do we do? We set up a testimony as a community of what God has done in our lives. I'm going to ask you, as people who have been saved, how many in here have a testimony of what God has done? How do you share that testimony in your life for others and for yourself? When I talked about Hannah, I reminded us that Hannah shows us that prayer is sustained by celebration, by gratitude. What do you put in your life that stands as a testimony, as a reminder to you of God's grace? I once knew of a pastor and his wife, wonderful couple, who were struggling to have a child. And when their child was finally born, they had a son. And this son had medical issues. This son had been taken early. Uh, this son had to uh, be born. He was premature. They first thought everything was okay. But then a couple of hours after the birth, the doctor had to call the pastor back in to where the baby was and to say, I'm sorry to inform you, but your baby has died. He said, now, we have revived him, but your baby actually died four times, and we've had to revive him each time. He said, Pastor, I'm so sorry, but I don't think your child is going to make it. He had something that at the time they called highline membrane disease, where your lungs fill up with fluid instead of air. In fact, the doctor said at one point, I had actually gone back to my office. They couldn't revive him, and they had to call me from my office to get here. And he said, Pastor, your baby was dead for about 10 minutes. And he said, if this happens again, we're going to let him go. That pastor had to tell his wife, who was still in the hospital, that they might lose their baby. The baby was born on a Saturday. 
The pastor was not able to preach on Sunday, so he had someone fill in for him. Sunday night, another pastor showed up to also fill in, and he found that the organist for the church was crying. And he asked her at the beginning of the service, why are you crying? And she said, I'm crying because I was told, I just went to see our pastor and his wife at the hospital, their baby's not going to make it. He's hooked up to monitors, hooked up to machines. He's just not going to make it. So the pastor got up and said, folks, today we're not going to have a service. We're going to have a prayer meeting. He said, this entire church is going to pray for this child, and I'm not going to dismiss service until someone has heard from God. That church prayed for two solid hours. At 9 o'clock, this elderly woman in the church, everyone called her Grandma Booker, she stood up and she declared, God told me the baby's healed, we can go home. So the church dismissed. Next morning, doctor comes in to see the parents and says, I don't know how to explain this. He said, but your baby's lungs are filled with fluid. He said, at 9 o'clock last night, your baby's lungs went from filled to clear like someone had flipped off and on a light switch. He said, it actually scared the nurses. And they called me and said, we don't know what to do. The baby acts like he's hungry. I said, feed him. But then the doctor said this to the parents. He said, but I warned you that your baby has been dead for too long. He said, your baby is going to have severe developmental difficulties. I don't think that baby will ever walk or talk. And of course, this was disturbing to the wife. The husband, who was the pastor, looked at the doctor and said with all the faith he could muster, the God that healed our baby's lungs can heal our baby's brain. God doesn't do a halfway job. And at the first checkup of the baby, those pastor and his wife, my mom and dad, took me to see that doctor. And the doctor said, I can't believe it, your baby's normal. That is a testimony. I died four times the day I was born. I was without oxygen for 10 minutes. The doctor gave up on me, but God never did. Church, we all have a testimony. We all have a reminder that we give to ourselves and give to others to say that this is what God has done. But not only that, we all share the same testimony. Because 2,000 years ago, God in the flesh went to the cross to die for my sins. My sins. I have that testimony. Do you have that testimony? Do you have that testimony? Do you have that testimony? When we come together, we come together as a community of repentance, sharing the same testimony of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And how many of you know as a community that does this, that assembles time and time and time again with that testimony of God, we should be able to do whatever God calls us to do. But sometimes we don't. Why not? Let's go to the next chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I want to begin reading here. Verse number 1. 
When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying. It is not you that have rejected it, but they have rejected me as king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So now Samuel has led Israel throughout his life. Samuel is now older. Samuel is not able to travel on the same circuit that he once did, so he sends his sons in his place. And his sons, who have not lived Samuel's life, who have not experienced what Samuel has experienced, his sons take advantage of other people. It says that they pervert justice. They take bribes. Now here's what I think is interesting. This whole book, in one sense, is about fathers and sons. Because Eli and his sons pervert justice. Now Samuel comes on the scene and his sons pervert, or they pervert worship. Samuel comes on the scene and his sons pervert justice. Worship and justice are these two things a community has to get right in order to function well as a community. This is something the Bible always puts together. We don't put together in this country. But the Bible always puts this together. And the reason it does is partly this. We were created in the image of God. All human beings are in God's image. We represent God's authority to the rest of creation. So when someone creates an idol, creates something that's not God, they create their own image of God. They haven't just replaced God, they've also replaced human beings. Because who God created as his image is us. When we create idols... When we live after something that's less than God, we're actually living below our own humanity because we are God's image. And when I cannot recognize God as God, I'm not able to recognize other people as God's image. And a lack of true worship leads to a lack of true justice. If we can't get the worship right, we're not going to be able to get the justice right. Israel has experienced a lack of true worship. Now they're experiencing a lack of true justice. God answered the worship, but Israel takes it upon themselves to solve the justice piece. And what they say is simply this, give us a king like all the other nations. It's one thing to recognize a problem. Let me say this. It's one thing to recognize injustice, and anyone can do that because anyone can experience injustice, and we have to hear that. But it's another thing to say, I know what the solution is. Israel comes to Samuel and they say to him, give us a king. Now, why are they asking for a king? Well, a king can give you something that Israel hasn't had up to this point. Because Israel up to this point has always been dependent on God to raise up a judge whenever they needed a new leader. 
If I'm in trouble, if we are under attack, God can give his spirit to someone. He can raise them up. That's the judge. He judges the rest of his life when he dies or when she dies, because the judge was also Deborah. We have to wait on God to raise up someone else. What do you get with the king? You get three things. A king gives you, number one, security. Because a king has a standing army. Whenever a judge came on the scene, every single time they had to raise an army because Israel doesn't have a standing army. But you get a king, you get a standing army. You get a force that will always exist to protect you. Israel's asking for that security. But a king also gives you stability. Who's always going to be the next king after the current king? Yeah, you want to know who the next king's going to be? Just look into the crib of the current king that you have. It gives you stability. You know where the next leader is coming from. And a third thing a king gives you is a king gives you status. Because when you have a king, you actually have what all the other nations have. You can always answer the question, take me to your leader. And in Israel asking Samuel for a king, what they're saying to Samuel in a sense is this, God is no longer enough. We have depended on God this entire time. Now your sons are following after perversion. We would like to solve this ourselves. Give us something so we don't have to wait on God. Give us the security that a king provides. Give us the stability that a king provides. Give us the status that a king provides. Let us look like the other nations. Can you imagine how embarrassing it would be for Israel to not have a king when everyone else around you has a king? And you come to an Israelite and say, where's your king? We don't have a king. Oh, good for you. You're, you're those people. I've heard about you. That's so interesting. You're so exotic, right? I mean, they don't have the status of having a king. And God says to Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Understand, as a church, as a people of faith, we have to be a community that always keeps God in first place. That always keeps God in first place. As a church, we're not called to be like every other group. And I want to explain really what I mean by this, because I want to be very clear. What I'm not talking about is fog machines. I'm not talking about things like that. You can have a fog machine at your church. That's fine. You don't want to see your choir when they worship. I don't know what they look like. That's your business. That doesn't bother me. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about preaching styles. I'm not talking about music. I'm not talking about management processes. I'm not talking about the ways that we update language or dress codes. How many of you have a Bible that was translated into English? You already have an update. I'm not criticizing that. What I'm talking about is when we change things because it's a replacement for depending on God. When the change is meant to replace the dependence on God. We've had to depend on God for this in the past. Let's fix it so we don't have to. Those are changes not made from wisdom. Those are changes made from a lack of faith. Those changes come from a lack of faith. Here's the thing. We can never, ever treat God as if he was plan B. We can never, as a people of faith, treat God as if he was plan B. 
as if we've got this problem solved now, we don't need you until it doesn't work and then we turn to you. Improvements are wonderful, but you always have to ask the question, what are you giving up for this improvement? Are you making a change for the better that puts you in closer dependence with God, that makes you a better representative of God? Are you simply trying to match up to someone else? Does this change help you succeed in your mission? Or is this change just about status? Is it just about security or stability? The greatest risk of all is that in trying to be like someone else, we're communicating to God that we are rejecting him. Understand, there are things that we have to do in our dependence on God. How many of you in here would love it, love it, if Pastor Mark, at the end of camp, decided that God had impressed on his heart and he was going to give every family $1 million? The most successful family camp in our history. You know why a lot of us don't have a million dollars? Not just because of budget or because of plans. Mark hasn't given it to us. It's because some of us would quit depending on God once we had the cash. Once we had the cash. In fact, sometimes, how many know that's what we pray? Give me money so I never have to worry again. I heard someone once say, I don't want to be rich. I just never want to have to live under a budget. I'm like, only a rich person would say that. I don't want to have to depend on God. I want this to be a replacement for God. Pastor Mark mentioned that I've I've had a few brushes with death. Uh, Once when I was in college, and this is not the story you asked me to tell. I'll tell that story later. But once when I was in college, I was a part of a ministry team like Worship Live where you'd travel to different churches. And I was part of a caravan of three cars. I was the car in the middle and driving. We were in Ohio And we were driving around this large temporary concrete wall that had just been set up. And the car in front of me, as we were coming around the wall, it curved, quickly swerved. And I didn't know what was going on because I couldn't see it. But I tried to swerve as well because there's something up there. But I didn't swerve in time. And what had happened was a big, large dog had been killed in the road and was now lying in the lane. It was a massive dog. And when I hit that dog, his skull got caught between my tire and my rim, and it locked up my steering wheel. So I didn't just drive around the wall. I immediately drove into the wall, driver's side. I had a big metal steering wheel, I went face first. I was wearing a seatbelt, but I'm still close, right? I went face first, no airbags, into the steering wheel. My teeth stuck into the plastic around the metal, but my mouth was closed, so my teeth didn't come out here. My teeth came out here. And then my head jerks back. And, of course, it all happened so quickly that I'm stunned, And I go to look at the people beside me to see if they're okay. And I turn around. There's a young girl seated behind me. And I turn around and I say to her, are you fine? And she just goes, oh, and points at me. Then the guy next to me said, Alan, get out of the car. You're getting blood all over your jeans. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I have no idea what's going on. I get out of the car. Someone runs. They they quickly put, you know, like a, a, a compress on my face. And I'm just kind of stunned sitting there, have no idea what's going on. I, uh, the young girl on our back starts hyperventilating because it was her first car wreck, not mine, but hers. 
they, they take her to another car to kind of calm her down. I'm talking to some of the people there, just kind of standing there waiting for the ambulance. And as I'm talking to someone, this one girl from my college looks at me and she's like, oh, Alan, she hadn't been in the car with us. She was in another car. She goes, your teeth. And as soon as she said that, I'm like, oh. I close my mouth, take my finger, and I go all the way back. And of course, all I can think is to make a joke at that moment. And I say to her, well, there goes my dating life. And she responds back, you never really had one to begin with. I'm like, thanks, thanks. I still don't realize how much of a flap I have going on on this side of my face because I'm holding it. This young girl has finally calmed down. She's in the car, some other car. And I'm still worried about her because, you know, she had been having a, a hyperventilating. So I decide to just go check on her. So she's calmed down. She's, you know, she's breathing normally, and I quickly pop in and go, how you doing, you know, and she's like, and so then they are like, okay, just step away from the car, step away from the car. They take me in an ambulance, uh, uh, strap me to a board because they don't know if my back is injured. They take me to an ER where I stay strapped to the board for seven hours because the doctors are all busy and no one can see me. And a nurse finally comes in and she says, by the way, one of the mothers of one of the students, we had been in the town where this mother's church was, she came to the ER, she stood over me for seven hours simply wiping my face. Uh, A nurse comes and says, you are in luck. I'm like, finally. And she says, no doctor who works here can see you, but the former chief of surgery at this hospital was here for a consultation He is a dental surgeon, and he is a plastic surgeon. He has agreed to come see you. She said, this guy is a legend in this area. You're in luck. I'm like, that's wonderful. So he comes to work on me. Now, they can't give me any drugs because they don't know how badly bad I'm injured in my back. They haven't x-rayed me yet because they want to work on the face first. I'm like, good luck. So they're like giving me Novocaine the whole time in my mouth because he's going to try, and they found some of my teeth. They're going to try and put them back in. He's going to sew my face up at the same time. Now, this guy was a big, big deal. So much so that the nurse working on me kept screwing up during the surgery because she was so nervous working with this doctor. And now I'm lying there fully conscious. And, you know, they're like, you know, and my arms are strapped to my side. I'm strapped to this board. And he'd say, hand me this. And she'd hand, no, not this, that. Put your finger here. No, not here, there. And I'd feel him, you know, move her finger around my face. And I'm kind of worried because this is the moment when they're sewing me up. And all I hear is him yelling at her. And at some point, it's too much for her. And she starts to cry in the middle of the surgery because he's a big deal. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I know I'm just screwing everything up. And he's trying to console. No, 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 you're fine. You're doing fine. Now, I'm worried because they are sewing me up. I want to encourage her too. So I'm strapped to the board. My arms are strapped to my side. I shoot up my thumb like a thumbs up. And I'm like, yeah, you're doing great. Which the doctor found really funny, right? So they sew up my face. Apparently, he did a great job. I'm sorry, Doug. Apparently, they told me he did a great job. Because I would have doctors come to see me for the rest of the two days I was there just to look at his work. Because they were like, you have no idea how bad it looked. And of course, at this point, my face had swollen so much that my bottom lip touched my chin and my nose at the same time. 
I had one friend say to me, it's the last time you ever pray to God, you get more lip, right? I got it, right? It, it's swollen. And so he looks at me, and I'm like, it looks terrible. They're like, no, no, when the swelling goes down, it's going to be a small scar. You have no idea what it would have looked like had it been someone else. Now, I praise God for all of that. But how many know we could still get mad because God put a wall in our way? I told you it was a temporary wall. What I didn't tell you is the reason they put up that wall is it had been flooding. And on the other side of that wall was now a raging river. I hit that wall face first. But had that wall not been there, my car would have gone into the river. Sometimes the things we blame are the things that save our lives. Sometimes the walls that we hit are the very things God has put up in order to keep us where God wants us to be because we don't know what was on the other side of that wall. Israel says, we want a king. They don't understand that God has protected them from a king. God has been keeping them safe. But he finally says to Samuel, give them what they want. Just warn them that their lives are about to get worse. And now we come to our last passage, and we're going to close here with prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel gives Israel their king. We're going to talk about that king tomorrow. But in chapter 12, we have Samuel's big goodbye. His big goodbye. Samuel assembles Israel again. And he says to them, you have a king who's ready to leave you. I'm stepping off the stage now. But he first asked them, have I ever cheated you? Have I ever told you something that was untrue? Have I ever done wrong to you? And Israel says to him, no, you never have. You've never done wrong to us. So then he asked this question, has God ever cheated you? Has God lied to you? Has God done wrong to you? And their answer is no, no. God has never done wrong to us. At which point Samuel says, then why did you do wrong to God by rejecting him as king? And we come to 1 Samuel chapter 12. And we're going to begin reading here at verse number 16. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain. You will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. And the people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants that we will not die. For we have added to all of our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. I'll let you read verse 22. I just want to highlight this. If you're going to circle any verse in the reading that we do for this week, this is the verse. 1 Samuel 12, 22. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. 
In this passage, Israel confesses their sin again. It's kind of a mirror of what happens in 1 Samuel 7. They repent. God answers by thunder. Israel says to Samuel, pray for us. And Samuel says, one, God would not have invested this much in you to reject you now. You sin by asking for a king. You sin by making God plan B, but God, for the sake of his great name, will always be faithful to his people. Church, that is a reason we can stand in prayer. No matter what we have done for the sake of his name, he will not reject those he has called as his own. And then Samuel says, far be it from me that I should withhold my prayer from you. How many know as Christians we are a community of repentance and we're a community of remembrance? But sometimes we make God plan B. How many of you ever done that before? And now we say, God, how do we be the people that you call us to be? And we're given this promise that God will not reject us. And as a church, we also have an intercessor who promises to pray for us. Right now, Jesus is praying for you. That's the promise we have. We have an intercessor, a great high priest, who makes intercession for us before the Father. The church used to understand that when they prayed, they were trying to align their prayers with the prayers of Jesus because he was praying for them. To pray in Jesus' name was to offer God back the prayers that Jesus was praying. Because to do anything in someone's name is to do it on behalf of them. If I pray in Jesus' name, I'm offering this prayer in the interest of Christ. This is the prayer Jesus is praying. This is what I'm now praying to the Father. Church, no matter how far we've gone away, God will be faithful and he prays for us. So I simply want to offer this as my question to you as we close in prayer. What is it that you need to trust God for? What is it that you need to pray in the interests of Jesus. We have a God who has made us his own, who will never reject his people, and this is a God we can turn to in faith. As I pray for you, I'm praying in the name of Jesus because I'm praying in faith that this is the prayer that Jesus prays before the Father. I'm asking you that whatever you need, you bring that to God in faith because Jesus is praying that to the Father. Lord, I want to thank you for your people and I want to thank you for being our God, for never abandoning us, never forsaking us, making us your own. And Lord, even when we treat you as plan B, you always have space for us, space for repentance, space for confession, space for remembrance. Lord, space to be forgiven, to be healed, to be called, to be set free. God, I pray for everyone in here and whatever they they may have. Lord, I know there may be some in this room who have never even made a confession of faith in you. They've never given their heart to you to trust you as their Lord, as their Savior. And I'm praying for them right now that God, they would make that step of faith to say, I trust in you, God, for the forgiveness of my sins. I trust in you, God, that you will make me part of your people and I will commit 
the rest of my life serving you. Lord, there are people in here who are hurting. There are people here who are your people and you have called them and you love them. And Lord, there are things they need to trust you for. God, I'm asking right now for them on the behalf of Jesus that you would meet their needs. There are people here who have loved ones they have been praying for repeatedly and they're asking for an answer. Those who are dealing with sicknesses, those who are dealing with conflicts in their family, conflicts in their work, those who are dealing with other kinds of challenges. Lord, you know what they are. You know the spiritual challenges we have. Right now, God, there's someone in this place that is praying for a particular temptation that they cannot seem to resist. Lord, you see their prayer, and I'm praying on your behalf that they would be set free. Lord, we commit this to you. We bring our prayers to you as an offering of faith, knowing that you pray for us, and we're going to leave this place in trust, knowing that you aren't plan B, you're plan A, and we are a community that will continue to tell of all the wonderful things that you have done. Thank you for this, Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. You are dismissed.